This episode of Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is brought to you by my friends at 10th Ward Distilling Company. 10th Ward Distilling Company is a woman-owned craft distillery located in the heart of historic downtown Frederick, Maryland. Known for their non-traditional and unconventional approach, 10th Ward produces a variety of spirits including whiskey, gin, limited one-time only releases, and Maryland's first and only absinthe. And let me tell you folks, that's something special. You can visit their cocktail lab and barrel room in downtown Frederick for tastings, spirit flights, cocktail creations, tours, and private events. And check this out. They just produced their first canned cocktail. It's called Corpse Reviver Number 10. With a name like that, you know it's got to be killer. Listen, it's got the Jennifer-inspired gin, gold medal absinthe, lemon, chai vanilla bean simple syrup, It even has lavender bitters. All that stuff together is delicious, folks. And you can get it for curbside pickup if you order it off of their website. So visit their website at 10thwarddistilling.com for more information. Or follow them on Facebook or Instagram at 10thwardco. That's T-E-N-T-H-W-A-R-D-C-O. And now, let's get started. like oh, I don't want to do wine you know I really like whiskey you know and and so that's why I decided you know not knowing anything about making whiskey being naive sometimes is, is a benefit because you wouldn't do it if you knew and uh, so I was like well we'll do we'll do whiskey it's gonna be like a winery but we'll do whiskey instead and um, nobody else is doing it which was a benefit you know we were the first to do it This is Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, a podcast that shines a light on the best winemakers, craft brewers, and spirit distillers in the DMV. So grab a glass of your favorite adult beverage. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and let's get started. Thank you, Asia. Hello and welcome again to Barrel Tasting. I'm Howard Fletcher. And in the heart of Virginia's wine country, I had the pleasure of visiting a pioneering and simply superb distillery. I had a wonderful conversation with Scott Harris, general manager and co-founder of Catoctin Creek Distilling Company in Percival, Virginia. Catoctin Creek was founded by Becky and Scott Harris in 2009 as the first legal distillery in Loudoun County since before Prohibition. Yeah, I couldn't believe that either. That's a long time. Virginia is the birthplace of American whiskey. And at Catoctin Creek, Scott and Becky have faithfully dedicated themselves to that tradition, producing Virginia's most awarded whiskey, their famous Roundstone Rye. This is a good one, folks. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Scott Harris of Catoctin Creek Distilling Company of Percival, Virginia. Let's all raise a glass. I'm at Catoctin Creek Distillery. And I'm speaking to one of the owners, Scott Harris. Mm-hmm. Scott, thank you for having me here. Yeah, my pleasure. I appreciate it. I know you guys are very busy. Uh, well, just to get started, let me say, tell you something that I, I did a little research, always research my guests. And I see that you are a, a graduate of Georgia Tech. Yes, I am. That's right. Well, I did uh, most of my undergrad there. Oh, really? Yeah, but we probably took two different paths because what I read said, you graduated with honors, and I'm sure that you did. I, my, my story wasn't the same. I just put that on there, you know. Uh, who knows? I spent way too much time at J.R. Crickets and Pippins and all the other places that were around there. Right. So, um, 
but it's a great school. And yeah. one of the things that, now you uh, own this with your wife. Yep. Or, uh, uh, Becky. Becky. Yep. Okay. And Becky is a chemi. Mm -hmm. And you, what is your background? I was in computer engineering. You're in computer engineering. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if computer, I think I'm a little older than you are. It, uh, it was it, called computer science. It was yeah, called computer it came science out of a computer science program. Right. So it was like a blend between double E, um, electrical engineering, and computer yeah. science. Kind yeah. of a little both, yeah. Yeah. So how do you get from this little technical school in Atlanta, Georgia, mm -hmm. actually a great technical school in Atlanta, Georgia, and to being a distiller? To, to being, being here? Yes. I mean, that's my life story, I guess. Um, <laughs> The uh, basically, you know, when I graduated from college, um, I was focusing on telecommunications and network systems. So I was working my very first job out of college was working for a company that was building a 911 system, you know, what we call 911 today. So if you were going in um, dialing 911, you know, this technology that allowed um, the police to uh, see your address and, you know, what medical conditions you might have and things like that on a screen without you having to tell them anything. That was, that was a new system at the time, in the um, late 80s, or early 90s okay. when I was doing that. So this was in the days of landlines? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep, landlines. And so when I graduated college, I started working on systems that were doing fiber optic to the home. And this is you know, 25, 30 years ago. Uh -huh. What we today call Fios, right? right. Verizon Fios was the technology we were building. And and when we were building it, you know, it was always the thought that this would be like tomorrow, like, the, you know, within a couple of years, everybody's going to have this. And it took 20, 30 years for it to happen. I mean, I now see it. But at the time, it was really frustrating to be building something that was taking so long to deploy. But uh, but that was my early uh, my early uh, programming days uh -huh. was was building out all these kind of what we call today broadband. Any so, cocktails mixed in there? No, but, nothing okay. yet. No. <laughs> so, you know, basically I worked and worked and worked and, you know, went into management um, halfway through my career, uh, an opportunity to come up to Virginia. Uh -huh. um, this was just about the time my first son was born. Becky and I had been married for about five years or something like that. And uh, so we uh, decided to move to Virginia. And I was still working in telecommunications, same kind of field. I basically, uh, at some point in 2001, all of the telecommunications industry up here and across the nation was basically going in the toilet. Yeah. And, uh, and so I switched into government contracting. And because uh, if you're a computer guy in yeah. the D.C. area, that's, Quite what liquidative, you, yeah. that's what you do. I mean, yeah. that's the only other opportunity. Yeah. And so I switched into that. And that was June of 2001. And I was it was very upsetting time because upsetting like you know your feet have been pulled out from under you. Sure. It's a totally different type of industry, totally different kind of work ethics. You know everything was different, and so I was kind of questioning. You know I'd been in one type of industry for a long time, and I'd questioning my my life choice. You know changing over, and uh, and then um, September 11th happened, and suddenly that brought everything into sharp focus. Um, and for me, you know, in my career, it was like, oh, now I have purpose, you know, uh -huh. we're doing something important in the job that I was doing and all that other stuff fell away. And I just focused on what I was doing. And I built my second, you know, sort of career doing that government contracting work. We were doing systems for the U.S. Navy, for the U.S. Army. Um, and it was interesting, you know, good work. And at this point, you know, I like to joke that, uh, you know, 20 years of computers, 20 years of government contracting taught me a great love of whiskey. So at this point, you know, <laughs> I was really as a, as a older, you know, probably late thirties, um, person getting into scotch and bourbon and really starting to explore that, you know, as I like to say, 
drinking like an adult, you mm-hmm. know, not for quantity, but for quality. Right. And uh, so I was exploring all over Scotland, you know, from a from a liquid perspective and um, really, really getting into it. And at the same time, getting kind of, you know, midlife crisis and burning out of my career. Sure. And so, you know, sitting, finding myself sitting in a cubicle in a windowless room, you know, doing um, PowerPoint charts all day, you know, and kind of questioning, is that all there is to life? You know, the things you ask yourself when you're turning 40 Uh and daydreaming about my first job that I had when I was a a 16 year old kid in high school, which was working at a winery and, you know, thinking about how productive that felt, you know, at the end of the day, I could, you know, make a bottle of wine and show it and say, I made this, I'm proud of this. You know, this is something I can hold in my hand. And unlike, you know, PowerPoint charts, which, you know, I was getting paid a ridiculously high amount to make, but I wasn't happy. And so that's where I brought the idea of this distillery to Becky. And I said, you know, you're a chemical engineer. Uh, she had worked in industry doing, um, doing contact lenses, doing computer parts, manufacturing of foam containers, like the, the clamshell containers you take home from a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was like, you're a chemical engineer, you know, manufacturing process and things like that. You'd be, be a great distiller. And she basically challenged me back. She's like, of course, I'll make a good distiller. Distillation is easy. From her perspective, that's easy chemistry. Sure. But she said, but you have to make sure that we can make money making whiskey. And so her challenge to me was to basically write that business plan. Okay. Before we go further, let me go back a little bit. There are two, two questions. One, where was there a time when you were going through uh, Scotland and Ireland and doing your, your, your market yeah. research? that what was the experience that said where you had the light bulb experience said i'd like to do this yeah yeah there absolutely was Um, we had been one of the few indulgences we had lived a pretty humble lifestyle we didn't you know have a bunch of new cars and big house and all that kind of stuff but we did enjoy traveling as a family so me and my two boys and becky we would often take a yearly trip you know someplace overseas we go to germany we'd go to italy We'd go to Ireland or Scotland, you know, and every time we go, we find ourselves ending up at distilleries, you know, Mm. because I want to see what's going on. And so we were doing that regularly, but it was finally at at Bushmills in um, Northern Ireland. Um, We were touring the distillery and of course it's a huge, massive plant and it is uh, the entire production facility for a worldwide production of Bushmills, you know, which is huge. And uh, we're getting just the standard tourist tour. Um, and it's, I think the young lady that was giving us a tour is probably still in high school, you know, uh-huh. and she's showing us around and she was very sweet. And we're up on these catwalks walking out across the production floor from above. You can see, you know, like eight pot stills. I don't remember the exact number, but, um, it was like eight big pot stills as big as this room, you know, huge production facility. And I stood there for a minute, just taking it all in and thinking, I want this, right? You know, this is the thing. And it, that was the light bulb. That was the moment I was like, I am going to find a way to have this. And of course, I mean, it's, it's a joke almost, you know, we're not anywhere near the size of Bushmills, but we do everything that they do mm-hmm. in that facility. We do that here as well. And so we have that, a small version of that, and we've carved that out. Um, so that was the, the moment when I came home and I just had the, as you'd say, you know, a bee in my bonnet and I wouldn't let it go. And... Where was the winery where you were working? <laughs> oh boy, uh, this is a real truth-telling session. <laughs> so I was making wine in the great state of Mississippi. Wow, <laughs> it's not well known for for winemaking. Actually, though, 
Um, so I was in high school, I was in Starkville, Mississippi, which mm-hmm. is the home of uh, Mississippi State University. They have there, it's an agricultural college. So they have a really respected vet program and ag college. And um, they have a department of enology. And uh, so the wine, they call it the wine lab um, on campus, um, is uh, the only place in Mississippi State campus that you can drink alcohol. Um, they set it off on an annex out by some of the fields. <laughs> There's some grapes, but they also have soybeans and all kinds of sorghum yeah. and everything else. And they have this little, they've made it into this little Alsatian Tudor kind of building right. off campus. Um, and that would be the place like when, when dignitaries would come to town, they could have dinners there with wine and, and, and you know, alcoholic drinks. So they would always have these fancy dinners at this place. And uh, in fact, I was able to, to get a signed copy of Alex Haley's book, Roots, mm-hmm. because he came to town and I you know, managed to insert myself in the room. So what, grapes, what grapes were they growing? Uh, so they were experimenting with all kinds of Vetus vinifera grapes, you know, French hybrids, right? right. But they were also experimenting with Vetus lambrusca, uh, Vetus rotundifolia, which are muscadine grapes, the Native American grapes. And by and large, you know, my, my recollection was at the time, you know, they've probably come a lot further since then, so I don't want to throw any shade. But at right. the time, the Vetus vinifera grapes, you know, weren't producing good quality wines in Mississippi. The climate wasn't great. And the Vetus um, rotundifolia grapes, which were the muscadine grapes, mm-hmm. weren't producing good wine because they just don't. There's a lot of esters and they right. taste kind of oily. Um, as my mother used to say, it tastes like crankcase oil. Um, <laughs> the uh, But what they did produce... Um, was really amazing grape juice, those muscadine grapes. And so um, when I was there, uh, the the wine lab, Mississippi State University was responsible for sort of the introduction of the idea of that white grape juice that you see in the shelves. Uh So, you know, you can find white grape juice now pretty much everywhere, but they had introduced that and that was made from muscadine grapes. Very delicious for grape juice, but not so much for the wine. But in the, in the process, you know, we, we, processed all the you know we did several seasons of winemaking um you know crushing and harvesting and doing all kinds of things that you would do at a winery and and so every step you know from bottling we even bottled sparkling wine so you know it was a great learning experience wow well the reason i asked is because i didn't think it was in this state um but here we are really in the middle of virginia wine country Mm -hmm. at this distillery so when you uh i guess Came up with the plan and mm-hmm. sold your wife into getting into this business and being your distiller. All right. How did you end up here? Yeah. So it's interesting. So we we ended up here first. So we uh, when we moved from Atlanta, Atlanta is sort of a mega suburb, right? Mm-hmm. And everything's growing so fast. And the little bitty house that we had bought in Atlanta at the time, you know, eight years before, then had you know it was two lane country road and, and that had turned into a six lane divided highway right. with a Home Depot on one side and a, you know shopping mall on the other and we were just like ugh we got to get out of here we want small town life and so we planted ourselves in Percival Virginia right uh-huh. after the Olympics um, and it is Mayberry I mean we have a couple of traffic lights when we moved here there was one now there's two okay um, you know so it, it's a small town feel and that's what we wanted uh-huh. so we planted ourselves here. And, and then, you know, we found out we were in Virginia's wine country, you know, Loudoun County, uh, richest country, our richest county in America yes. and, uh, and loved all that. So when, when the idea for the business formulated, the first question I asked myself was, should I make a winery? But at the time, you know, there were already 40 wineries That's in right. Loudoun, you know, and, and I was like, oh, I don't want to do wine. You know, I really like whiskey, you know, and, 
And so that's why I decided, you know, not knowing anything about making whiskey, being naive sometimes is, is a benefit because you wouldn't do it if you knew. And uh, so I was like, well, we'll do, we'll do whiskey. It's going to be like a winery, but we'll do whiskey instead. And um, nobody else is doing it, which was a benefit. You know, we were the first to do it. And, uh, and, and doing it here, then we also, of course, then immediately reached out to the wineries because I have that great love of winemaking and the process. You just walk in the room, you can smell it. You can right. tell what's going on. And, um, and so I wanted part of that. And, and so that's why we make brandy. And, and we made brandy ever since day one. Yeah. Winemaking is really where this podcast was born. Yeah. And I speak to a lot of, I've spoken to a lot of winemakers, some that I, many that I respect greatly. And you guys, from your story, have two of the components that I say, for at least for my aesthetic, mm -hmm. make for success in the craft beverage business. Okay. One is that you are, and I mean this in the warmest way, you guys are science nerds. <laughs> yeah. And those I found have been the best, especially with a background in chemistry. Yeah. Are, have, you know, they make the best wine. Or some of the ones that make the business, there's an art to it. Too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so not everybody having gone to Georgia Tech, I know that not every <laughs> every uh, person with a science background is made to necessarily express themselves that way. But if you have what it takes, uh, you can make a good product. The other thing is that uh, sometimes I find that some of the people that get into this business, like you were saying, you thought about starting a winery. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing what you love and reverse engineer it from there, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You started from where you what you wanted to make was whiskey, and then built it out, and right. that seems. And you've obviously right. done a heck of a job. Well, and and you definitely figure it out as you go, right? I mean, you're thrown problem after problem. I mean, this is just the entrepreneurship story, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I could be making a laundromat, and it's like, where do I get the machines? How do I get an electrician to wire them all? Right. Up? Whatever you just solve the problems and knock them down one by one as they come up, and that's what we did, you know. And and some of them were really big problems that we had to figure out. But the basic thing of making whiskey is a recipe, right? You could cook it in your kitchen. And if you use good ingredients and good methods, and, you know, Becky and I are both process-oriented um, engineers, uh -huh. um, then we can make process that says, okay, now when we hire somebody, they'll also make the same whiskey that we make. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think that's been part of our key to doing it. Um, is that we tried to build a scalable business, even when it was just her and I working together. So let's get to the business mm -hmm. to what you make you guys have focused on rye mm -hmm. whiskey now i'm a marylander mm -hmm. very proud of our our rye tradition should be uh but oh I, let me start off with, by saying what i was really shocked to discover was that you all are the first legal distillery in loudon county mm -hmm. since prohibition yeah considering that you opened in, or started in 2009 right is mind-blowing to me, considering yeah. all of the money, like you said, in this county, mm -hmm. all of the people that make alcoholic beverages in this right. county, that they didn't go for distilling. Right. No, it was, you know, right up until when we started, 2009, you know, any one of these wineries or, you know, there weren't even very many breweries back then, mm -hmm. um, but any one of these wineries could have, you know, gotten a still, gotten licensed and been doing a little brandy or eau de vie on the side. And just, mm -hmm. they weren't. And uh, I think it's a, a couple things, you know, the craft spirits industry really blossomed after 2009 yeah. in a way that people took notice. You know, nobody thought about craft whiskey in 2005. 
you know, there were only a couple out there. And so I think that was a really uh, interesting, you know, sort of industry awakening um, that happened. Yeah, we were we were the first and since about, you know, since at least 1920. So about 100 years ago. Yeah, I know there's a rich uh, tradition of whiskey mm-hmm. here in the state of Virginia. For sure. I, th- I believe it's the first yeah. state that produced. Jamestown. Yeah. 16, whatever it was. You know. To produce whiskey. Yep. My mother's side of the family is from the Bedford, Lynchburg okay. area of the Blue Ridge. Yeah. However, <laughs> they're more famous for their corn products. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and most of them were done, produced during prohibition. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, there's still illicit production in, in the state. And yes. That, it is actually a, a true part of our history, and we have to acknowledge it. And that, you know, they have craft and they have, you know, products that are tasty and delicious and healthy, and they have products that are probably not so much. And, uh, you know, it varies widely, just it's not on the, on the legal radar, so to speak. I'm not saying I condone it. Obviously, I can't. But, the, uh, but I do say that, you know, when you talk about the history of whiskey in America, uh, you know, or the history of spirits in general, you know, moonshine has its place in that history book. Absolutely. So, absolutely. So, you're, um, you got the, your inspiration mm. came in at Bushmills. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Bushmills is made from wheat. Rye. Is I'm it sorry, rye? not rye. Sorry, I, I misspoke. Barley. Barley. Yeah, barley. Okay, barley. barley. Yeah, barley. So uh, I know there's a rich tradition of rye here, and that might have made a decision for you. But why did you decide yeah. to focus on rye? Yeah. So definitely. So what what we love as much as we love the um, whiskey mm-hmm. that we make, we also love history, right? And so in 2009, as Becky and I are sort of scratching out a business plan, um, you know, more of the esoteric stuff, not not um, the numbers and those kind of production things, but like, what are we going to make? Why are we going to make it? What's our marketing story? Things like that. What we were enchanted with was this story of rye whiskey in America and in particularly Virginia. So if we start in Jamestown and go from there, right? So we're talking 1600 something all the way to 1750s, right? So pre-revolutionary war. So we're all colonists. Everybody that's living here, well, at least all the citizens are are of the British crown. We're all British. And uh, and at that time, you know, it's hard to believe, but people had lived here 100 years before um, the Revolutionary War. You know, that's an established, you know, population of colonies. And uh, and so at that time, what what, have, what does life look like? You know, there's little villages, there's lots of, um, like Leesburg, there's uh, farms everywhere, right? And they've got different people working on the farms. Of course, there's enslaved people um, mm-hmm. working on these farms as well. But by and large, you know, these farms are small scale family farms, right? And so they would have um, mostly the men would be out working the farms um, in the fields, working the farms. And then the women would be back at home and they would be doing, you know, quote unquote, women's work. I did the air quotes with my right, fingers. Right. Right. So laundry, cooking, cleaning, that kind of stuff. And one of those jobs was distilling the ration of whiskey for the farm. So. They would take extra um, grain that was not going to be used for, you know, selling it or, or bread or whatever, and they would make it into whiskey. And that became not just, you know, for drinking, but also, you know, medicine and paint thinner and all kinds of industrial uses. They, they could treat it as money. Mm-hmm. It became um, something you could trade uh, for. And, um, and so it became very valuable. But across Virginia for that first hundred years or so, People were making that small-scale, farm-based, traditional rye whiskey, and it was the most popular product. By the time 
George Washington is done with the presidency. You know, we've all seen Hamilton now. Right. And uh, he retires to his farm. He needs something to do. And so his farm manager, who was from Scotland, says, hey, why don't you make whiskey? And so by the time George Washington has that all set up, he is the largest commercial distiller in America at that time. Wow. Producing mostly rye whiskey. So by that's the, the sort of the zenith, if you will, of, of the whiskey, rye whiskey production in, in Virginia up until, you know, up until we get back to modern days. Wow. So we love that so, story. We want yeah, to tell no, it. Yeah, it is. He's not only the father of our country, but the father yeah. of whiskey in our country. It's actually so. after that, you know, that that it moves more into Maryland and Pennsylvania and becomes uh-huh. bigger industrial kind of affairs. And a lot of those small farm scale distilleries, you know, perish. Um, and uh, the big industrial, you know, whiskey out of Pennsylvania, especially Western right. Pennsylvania, really takes over. Um, and then things, of course, move into Kentucky and bourbon becomes predominant as well. Right. Well, you've really done, you know, and rye kind of died out, mm-hmm. you know, in popularity. Yeah, for sure. Until, uh, until about 2009. Until 2009. And you all have done quite well with your rye. So uh, if you would, would, would you go through your, I think you have like three core yeah. rye offerings? Yeah. Our flagship um, line is the um, Roundstone Rye. Mm-hmm. And the Roundstone Rye is relatively youthful rye that that basically reproduces those traditional techniques that we were talking about from the 1750s. Mm-hmm. So it's a, you know, a relatively young rye, uh, about two years old, um, made from 100% rye, pot stilled, and then um, aged in our um, Virginia climate. You know, so all of those things, mm-hmm. we would say, make it a Virginia rye whiskey. It's, it's a... Uh, terroir of the grain and the climate and all those things that go into making it taste quite different from Midwestern rice that you're getting out of Kentucky or Indiana. That uh, Roundstone line comes in three different basically expressions. The 80 proof rye, which is our soft, easy sipping. Becky calls it her front porch sipper. You know, it's just super easy like lemonade. Um, And then there's the 92 proof, our distiller's edition, which is when we find barrels that exhibit a more spicy kind of take um, from, uh, you know, just natural maturation of the wood against the, the whiskey. And then the cask proof is when we find those perfect barrels that are so well integrated that they just taste amazing, delicious at full cask strength, and they need no water added to them whatsoever. Wow. So th- that's our th- three main ones. We also do a rye whiskey line called Rabble Rouser, which is our bottled and bond four-year-old plus um, line. And that is um, one that Becky will open up the still, distill it a little more earthy, a little more old fashioned, let it age for longer um, to, to smooth out the rough edges. And uh, that's a really fun, boisterous whiskey as well. Now you have expanded into brandy and gin. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess the brandy came first, am I so, so actually, yeah, we've done brandy since day one. Okay. We have an interesting story about how we You're first surrounded produced. Surrounded by grapes, I yeah, guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. So actually, um, it's kind of a fun story because it's a story about humility and, and, and not getting too ahead of yourself. Um, when we when we first started the distillery, as an entrepreneur, you, you have sort of a, a, a strange complex. You, you feel like everything you're doing is ordained by God, right? But you can do no wrong. <laughs> right. Everything you're doing must succeed because, of course, you're doing it, um, which is a a strange sort of um, mental derangement. Right. But uh, so we, you know, we basically, you know, we got the loan, we got financing, we got, um, uh, you know, licensing and we got the equipment and everything's just falling into place. Boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. And this thing is just coming along really nicely. And by January, then our first equipment was arriving. And um, the guy who installs it 
for us is from Germany and he's here with the equipment and we get it all put together and you know it's in a different building than we are today and he turns to me and he says okay Scott all the equipment's ready what do you have ready to distill so we can test the equipment Uh and I was like oh (laughs) crap I had nothing right right? and I needed you know 50 to 100 gallons of alcoholic something to Mm -hmm. test the still and I had completely just forgotten to to think of that and i had nothing and so you know at first we're brainstorming it's like can we call total wine can i get six kegs of beer in here like what can i do to get something in here how much whiskey can we get at the last minute and and becky had reminded me that at the beginning of our business plan we had reached out to all the wineries and one particular winemaker doug fabioli who who has a a beautiful winery north of us um said had said you know oh this is cool what you're doing you know i really want to you know help you if i can give me a call if you ever need anything and so becky was like hey give doug a call and so you know i called doug i'm like doug we're in a tight spot (laughs) (laughs) and so i need 50 gallons of something he's like well i got 50 gallons of pear wine here uh i'll be right over like he just puts the drum in his truck and drives over and we dump the drum into the still and we distill it and from the very first minute we're like this is beautiful right wow. and so we did like a four hour five hour distillation and doug stayed the entire time mm-hmm. he he was so geeking out over seeing it too sure you know we tasting the spirit coming off the still the different flavors as it moves through the distillation making a cut for the first time and you know doing it completely you know by you know taste and not really knowing yet what we're doing um but we the very first thing that came off that still was pear brandy and uh and at the end of that process i i turned to doug and i i said you know, what can I pay you for that, for that wine? You know, you really helped us out. I really appreciate it. And he's like, I don't want a dollar from you. He says, I just want to work with you for the next 25 years. Nice. And, and, and I melted. I was like, this is going to be a great industry to be part of. And to this day, we still work with Doug every, every year. So yeah. on making that beer brandy. Yeah. I have uh, tried to line them up for the show too, but yeah. I've met several people who have a nice Doug Fabioli story. So yeah, he's a, he's a, uh, as they say, he's a mensch. He um, has helped so many people in this industry, and he's really trying to set up sort of an agricultural industry, um, starting with training of uh, like high school and college age kids um, in the industry, you know, teaching them. Not every kid wants to go to do a white collar, you know, be an accountant or something. Right. Teaching kids who want to be out in the vineyard and learn how to propagate, you know, vines and things like that. He's Doug is a, a real asset. Well, see, I need to, that's why I need to talk to him. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, the mission of this podcast is to promote the craft beverage industry mm. here. And I want this to be a destination, much yeah. like Napa. Yeah. You know, for people to come say we're going to Virginia and Maryland to go see these craft producers. So um and you're obviously one on the stop because you're not only were you the first here, but you all have won quite a few awards. Yeah, we've gotten our share, haven't we? Yes you have. Yes <laughs> you have. So yeah. Um, you know, you're you're a place to go. As you 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 uh when did you start producing gin? We started producing gin probably two or three months into the program. So pretty much right from the start. Okay. So as we were producing whiskey, you know, we do a traditional Scottish distillation of heads, hearts, and tails, right? Mm -hmm. So the tails are the undrinkable kind of bitter, you know, elements at the end that are coming off the whiskey. Um, What they contain is a lot of fusel oils. So they just taste like aspirin and they have a really funky, gross smell. They kind of smell like rotten compost or garbage or a moldy dish rag right so you don't want that in the whiskey mm-hmm. and so typically in in like the scottish process they'll put the tails into the next batch and you're reclaiming some of the alcohol that would have otherwise been lost 
Um, but for our purposes, we were just accumulating them in a, in a drum and, and wondering what we should do with them. You know, we can't just throw them out because there's still ethanol in there. So Becky decided to redistill the tails. And in doing so, redistilling them, you can actually make a purified grain spirit from that, from the rye. Okay. And, uh, and so then we were like, well, what are you going to do with that? You know, it's not quite vodka. We don't really want to make vodka or sell vodka. We'd have to distill it a whole bunch more times in a pot still to make it vodka. So it's not feasible or economic. So we were like, well, let's, let's try gin, you know, and that was her idea. Um, and so she started, you know, on a one gallon basis, putting together different recipes for gin. Um, blending herbs and, and trying to tweak them and find something that was unique and our own. Um, and, and she nailed it. You know, we, she did 11, 11 trials before we finally settled in on the recipe that we yeah. do today. Um, so I guess our gin is gin number 11, you know. <laughs> but uh, at, at one time I had 10 different gallons of uh, sample gins uh, at home of not quite, you know, good enough ready right, to be sold. Right. But I couldn't bring myself to throw them away. Right. And uh, finally, Becky made me dump them out. <laughs> right. Well, I'll have to try some because back in those days when I was pretending to be a student at Georgia Tech, mm. gin was my drink. Oh, yeah. And, but I was drinking the very British yeah. juniper forward Absolutely. gins. And since then, and I'm not really, a, wouldn't consider them, I'm really more of a wine drinker than anything else sure. now. However, uh, the gins that I've tried that are made locally mm -hmm. have much more character. Yeah to them and they're not as juniper forward which i i'd say that's a pretty good summary of ours as well yeah and I, and i and i tend to enjoy that yeah a lot ours you know if you drink ours it starts with that rye base so that rye base is it's the first interesting ingredient in there because it gives it a soft sweet velvety base so there's a lot of oil in there and that oil just gives a great mouth feel you know it's viscous um, um in the mouth and that's really pleasant um, and then on top of that, we build what I would consider a uh, profile of mulling spice. So like winter spice. So um, coriander gives a peppery note and um, cinnamon and anise gives a licorice note and there's orange peel and things like that. So those are really nice and play into the gin. Of course, juniper, but the juniper is really almost just the floral note. There's not really much of a flavor note coming from that juniper. Yeah. Um, so it, it makes a very interesting and unusual gin. And you know, we love it in cocktails. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you make also uh, produce some bitters. Or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, those bitters, where are they? They're over here on the shelf. Okay. Um, they are um, our roundstone bitters. Uh, we, have, we do it in, in collaboration with Eric Koslick from mm -hmm. D.C. Embitterment. They're a D.C.-based um, bitters mm -hmm. company. And they, they're kind of bespoke bitters. So um, Denise Petty, our tasting room manager, um, this was her project that she worked on with Eric. To, to come up with a bitters that was representative of the, the stuff that we have growing around here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, chicory root, dandelion, rose, you know, herbs like that that are going to be predominant in that to, to create a Virginia profile for bitters. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's in the vein of, you know, your sort of aromatic bitters, but with all those Virginia type elements put into them. Good. Yeah. Just, I'm not going to, uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're busy. Uh, there are a couple of questions I always ask people okay. here, and these are, these are two of them. If you, you started in 2009, mm -hmm. if you could send a message to yourself <laughs> back in 2008, yeah. something you know now that you yeah. didn't know then, yeah. what would you, what would you uh, say? Branding, 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 branding. Oh my gosh, branding. 
we had no appreciation or understanding of the importance of branding mm -hmm. at the time. And, and, and I would say we would probably have been contrarian uh, thinkers on that at that time. So uh, if you go into a supermarket and you look at the wine aisle, you see all those labels, right? Yes. And there's hundreds of bottles, right? And most people don't know what, you know, one, you know, Fox Ridge winery is versus, you know, Ancient Peaks or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're just buying, as Becky says, with their eyes, right? Yeah. It's a pretty label. Um, and I want a Pinot today. So I'll grab from the Pinot, I'll grab the one with the horse on it because I like that horse, mm -hmm. right? Even if they don't express that in their mind, they're doing it. And in our mind at the time, uh, we thought we'll make the most beautiful liquid on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. It will be a jewel in the bottle. Um, but uh, what goes on the label can almost be just generic. It doesn't matter, right? We have, we're engineers, so everything that had to be there is there right, right. in exactly the right font size and exactly the right place and all this kind of stuff. But the label wasn't beautiful. I, you know, it embarrasses me today to think of it, but, you know, I designed those labels from Microsoft Word. You know? It was <laughs> terrible, you know, but the labels were technically legally correct yeah. and, and they did the job. And, um, and so, you know, we went through various versions of those um, as we evolved. They were always just not very good. And and, and there was an, a moment in um, Germany, actually. I was at the Berlin um, Bar Convent show, big, huge show, 40,000 people or more. It's, it's enormous. Um, and uh, I was presenting my products at mm -hmm. the booth. And uh, I was talking to an Irishman who came up. He was a bartender who bartends in Paris on the Champs-Élysées. And, uh, and he was drinking the spirit and he was loving it. He's like, this is gorgeous. This gin is beautiful. This whiskey is fantastic. He's like, and then he looks at the bottle and he goes, I would never have these on my bar. <laughs> and, and my heart just sank. Yeah. And I was like, what are you talking about? He says, these labels are atrocious. He yeah. said, you know, this looks like you printed it on a dot matrix printer or a, a inkjet printer. And, and I just was crushed. Right. And yeah. then he, he walks away and that was the end of that. Yeah. And, uh, and Becky, you know, I came home, you know, with my hat in my hand and a really foul mood. And, and Becky, as she often does, this is one of the benefits of this partnership that we have, is she turned it around and she said, Scott, that guy did you a favor. Yeah. He told you the truth. And I, and I had to embrace that uncomfortable truth and then realize we needed to invest in branding. So we did. And, you know, we worked with a firm and they were, were very pleased with the branding today. It speaks to all kinds of things that we want to have spoken to the Virginia, Virginia ality of our product, mm -hmm. you know, the, the handcrafted nature, the old fashioned nature of it with some of the fonts we choose and things like that. But it took us, uh, it took us eight years or five years or whatever to, to figure that out. And had we started from the beginning with that, who knows how much better we would have done. You know, it's, it's such an important part. You have to have it tight from the beginning, especially nowadays, now that there's a thousand or 2000 or whatever distillers yeah. across the nation. Yeah, that's true. But I'm going to still say that because you didn't concentrate on that and you concentrate on the product Yeah. in the long run, it worked out. Yeah. Right. Because again, I know people who reverse engineer who I've met that are, I'm going to make this bottle with this great label. Now let's figure out how to put the liquid in. Right, and that's right, not right. Really yeah, we we always. You're right. I mean, we always focus on the product quality um, as the first most important thing, and and absolutely, I have no regrets for that. You know, that was that was great, and um, you know, all the awards or whatever that we get for it, you know, are because of what's in the bottle, not what's on the bottle. Yeah. So, um, but 
I just sort of, you know, the old what could have been, you know, if we'd known more. So that was definitely an area that we just didn't know and didn't appreciate at the time. In your comings and goings in this business and you talking to people about what you do, hmm. is there a misconception or is there something out there that you want to tell people about craft uh, beverages or about what you do that they may not understand and you want to clear up for them? Yeah, it's it's slowed down a bit. But, you know, in the first eight years, you know, we had a whole bunch of visits from what we would call wannabes, right? Uh -huh. People who were like, oh, my God, this is exciting. There's so much coolness about craft whiskey and I want to make craft whiskey and I don't know anything about it. And um, what most people who would come in um, wouldn't know is that it's a really hard business to be in. I mean, it is you've got to have money. You've got to have, you know, all kinds of um Things have to go your way. Mm -hmm. And frankly, the distribution um, chain, you know, for how you sell your products is highly regulated and extremely difficult. Um, and so, you know, not knowing any of that, most people just come in with the romance of, oh, you know, standing in a rick house with barrels and pulling a sample from the barrel and, and nosing a glass and all that kind of stuff. Right. And it's like, you know, this is a hard blue collar job. Like, you know, the guys working in the distillery spend, you know, nine hours a day or whatever, you know, um, busting their butts, cleaning equipment and doing all kinds of stuff like that. And, you know, they're basically like, you know, janitors. I mean, they're just constantly cleaning stuff up and um, every day making the same product. So it is a very, very difficult job and it takes a lot of money to do it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the thing. The big misconception is like that it's some glamorous, glorious job. <laughs> and, you know, I go home even today, you know, exhausted yeah. by it. So, but that's it's good. It's happy exhaustion. That's what I tell people when they, you know, you see these Jack Daniels commercials mm -hmm. and they show you people working there. I'm like, that's what it is, folks. They're not like, they're, it right. might look cool because it's on the commercial. Right. But the guy in the beard with the dirty apron on. Right. <laughs> Up to their arms and rye mash. You right. Know? Yeah, right. exactly. And we would have these mistakes usually when I was working in the production side in yeah. earlier days where you'd forget to close a tank before you fill it. Mm -hmm. And then you'd, pump your mash in and you start seeing the stuff all over the floor and you're like, Oh God dang it. Yeah. There's the next three hours of cleanup, uh, you know, that I just created for myself. So this is going to drop probably maybe the week or two before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. uh, is, or you have any events coming up, anything you'd like the listeners to know about? Uh, yeah. The, um, the events landscape is sadly um, been pretty much decimated by COVID. Mm -hmm. um, we, Normally, in a normal year, would have monthly bottling workshops that we have suspended since then. Um, we would have uh, dinners in the distillery. We have a Christmas dinner that we normally do in the distillery um, every year, four-course dinner with cocktail pairings, and that one has been suspended this year, sadly. Um, so what we've been doing is um, virtual tastings. Mm -hmm. So. Um, we sell a whiskey gift pack right now that has on it a virtual tasting. So if you want to meet me personally on Zoom and I walk you through, or Becky, the um, the, the spirits and do a vertical tasting of the Roundstone Rye product line, um, that's what that whiskey pack is for. Um, so trying new ways to reach our, our customers out there. Um, we also have been uh, doing some, if you're in the local area, some fun things just to try and encourage business at our partners, the restaurants. Restaurants have been hit hard, everybody knows, oh. and, and struggling. Many of them are open, but they're doing like carryout service or to-go cocktails and things like that. And so we created a, uh, a bingo that 
you basically can visit any one of our DC or Virginia area restaurants, have a little card and get it stamped. And if you get five in a row, you get a little free prize and things like that, just to encourage people to, you know, get out. We're not saying if you don't feel safe, go into the restaurant, but you can get some carry out or something like that. And uh, so trying to support them with that. And that's kind of a fun thing to do too. So all of that is on the website? All that's on the website. Yeah. If you go to uh, contactingcreek.com, and we have an events tab, and there's lots of information yeah, out there for that. That uh, that link will be in the show notes. Okay. So if you're listening and you're interested, please go to it. Yeah. And Scott Harris, I really appreciate the time. I look forward to coming back again and again. Hopefully, I'll get uh, Becky here sometime, and we can sit and talk to her. Yeah, about for sure. Her experiences here. Um, this place, I want to say for the record, this tasting room, I really like. I like. Uh, tasting rooms, especially in this area, that are historic. Mm -hmm. uh, is is there a little just two second history of this? Yeah, room? this room, uh, this building is almost a hundred years old. Okay. So next year it'll be a hundred years old. Um, it was a uh, Percival's first Buick dealership built in 1921. <laughs> oh wow! Um, back when this was a, um, a a dirt road out in front of us, horse and buggy, you know, was the thing. Um, there was this new technology that had just been um, introduced called cars right and uh, they were selling them here the, they they looked like horseless carriages you know it was more like a um, more like a model t kind of car yeah. you know in the early days but they were selling buicks right here in this room till 1972 so for about 51 years uh selling buicks in this building and uh, we picked it up in 2013 and did a heavy renovation on it with historical, you know, it's a historically registered building, so we had to be careful with right. what we do. Right. Um, but it is a beautiful, beautiful showpiece for us. Yeah, well, it, hopefully, you know, we can get through this little patch here and, you know, it can fill up again. Yeah. But you can't make reservations to come. Yeah, we're running at 50% capacity right yeah. now. And, yeah. and actually, it's been quite busy at that reduced level. Um, so we're pleased with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so if you want to come, we do all the social separation and keep, you know, clean and sterilizing everything in between use and all that kind of stuff. Great. All right, Scott, thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, that's another show in the books. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a fantastic time visiting Catoctin Creek Distilling Company, and I know you would too. So if you're ever near Percival, Virginia, no, heck, if you're anywhere in the mid-Atlantic, <laughs> you need to make time to visit Catoctin Creek Distillery. And if you can't go there, go check out their website. It's in the show notes, and you'll be glad you did. They have a great selection. You need to go ahead and taste it. I'd like to thank Scott Harris and all the great folks at Catoctin Creek for being so welcoming and flexible with their time. I very much appreciate it. I'd also like to thank my partner, Joan, who was nice enough to babysit my new puppy, Milton, during the interview. He can be a handful. He's cute, but he can be a handful. So thank you, sweetheart. I would like to ask you to please subscribe to the pod if you have not already done so. I'll introduce you to some of the best folks in the DMV and surrounding area, and that is a promise. Please tell your friends about it and have them tune in too. They'll thank you for it, and I certainly will. Listen, I'm all about promoting the craft beverage industry in the DMV because it's some of the best in the nation. If you agree, please share the podcast. The more it grows, the more I can get the word out about the craft beverage producers here and the people that work in this industry, and it can only grow and get better. And that's what we want. This podcast was produced by my friends at Q9. If they can make a mumble artist like me sound good, imagine what they could do for someone who actually should be behind a microphone. If you're in the podcast business, please Google Q9 and ask them about their services. You can thank me later. 
I'll be back next week with another craft beverage maker in the DMV to introduce to you. I know there's a ton of media you could be listening to right now, and you've chosen to listen to me, and I really appreciate that, and that's why I work so hard to bring you the content I do. I truly appreciate your time investment in me and in the show. Thank you again for listening. Remember, always have a designated driver, so I'll be able to see you next time. East Vicata. You have been listening to Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, part of the Fletcher Podcast Group. You can reach Howard at his website, barreltastingpod.com. I'm Asia Blue. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Okay, I am, I'm in a place where, you know, I've been saying the word Katowkin. Did I say it correct? No. Katowkin. 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 I've been saying that all my life, and then I'm about to do this show with you, and I was like, guys, i got to say this right. Katowkin. Katowkin.